War and Peace, Book Twelve, Chapter Ten, read for LibriVox.org by Laurie Ann Walden. On the eighth of September, an officer, a very important one, judging by the respect the guards showed him, entered the coach house where the prisoners were. This officer, probably someone on the staff, was holding a paper in his hand and called over all the Russians there, naming Pierre as the man who does not give his name. Glancing indolently and indifferently at all the prisoners, he ordered the officer in charge to have them decently dressed and tidied up before taking them to the marshal. An hour later a squad of soldiers arrived, and Pierre, with thirteen others, was led to the Virgin's Field. It was a fine day, sunny after rain, and the air was unusually pure. The smoke did not hang low as on the day when Pierre had been taken from the guardhouse on the Zubovsky rampart but rose through the pure air in columns. No flames were seen, but columns of smoke rose on all sides, and all Moscow, as far as Pierre could see, was one vast charred ruin. On all sides there were waste spaces, with only stoves and chimney-stacks still standing, and here and there the blackened walls of some brick houses. Pierre gazed at the ruins and did not recognize districts he had known well. Here and there he could see churches that had not been burned. The Kremlin, which was not destroyed, gleamed white in the distance with its towers and the belfry of Ivan the Great. The domes of the new convent of the Virgin glittered brightly, and its bells were ringing particularly clearly. These bells reminded Pierre that it was Sunday and the feast of the Nativity of the Virgin. But there seemed to be no one to celebrate this holiday. Everywhere were blackened ruins and the few Russians to be seen were tattered and frightened people who tried to hide when they saw the French. It was plain that the Russian nest was ruined and destroyed, but in place of the Russian order of life that had been destroyed, Pierre unconsciously felt that a quite different, firm French order had been established over this ruined nest. He felt this in the looks of the soldiers who, marching in regular ranks briskly and gaily, were escorting him and the other criminals. He felt it in the looks of an important French official, in a carriage and pair driven by a soldier, whom they met on the way. He felt it in the merry sounds of regimental music he heard from the left side of the field, and felt and realized it especially from the list of prisoners the French officer had read out when he came that morning. Pierre had been taken by one set of soldiers, and led first to one and then to another place with dozens of other men and it seemed that they might have forgotten him or confused him with the others. But no, the answers he had given when questioned had come back to him in his designation as the man who does not give his name, and under that appellation, which to Pierre seemed terrible, they were now leading him somewhere with unhesitating assurance on their faces that he and all the other prisoners were exactly the ones they wanted, and that they were being taken to the proper place. Pierre felt himself to be an insignificant chip fallen among the wheels of a machine whose action he did not understand, but which was working well. He and the other prisoners were taken to the right side of the Virgin's Field, to a large white house with an immense garden not far from the convent. This was Prince Sherbatov's house, where Pierre had often been in other days, and which, as he learned from the talk of the soldiers, was now occupied by the marshal, the Duke of Ekmul, Davout. They were taken to the entrance and led into the house one by one. Pierre was the sixth to enter. He was conducted through a glass gallery, an anteroom, and a hall, which were familiar to him, 
into a long, low study at the door of which stood an adjutant. Davout, spectacles on nose, sat bent over a table at the further end of the room. Pierre went close up to him, but Davout, evidently consulting a paper that lay before him, did not look up. Without raising his eyes, he said in a low voice, "'Who are you?' Pierre was silent, because he was incapable of uttering a word. To him, Davout was not merely a French general, but a man notorious for his cruelty. Looking at his cold face, as he sat like a stern schoolmaster who was prepared to wait a while for an answer, Pierre felt that every instant of delay might cost him his life. But he did not know what to say. He did not venture to repeat what he had said at his first examination. Yet to disclose his rank and position was dangerous and embarrassing. So he was silent. But before he had decided what to do, Davout raised his head, pushed his spectacles back on his forehead, screwed up his eyes, and looked intently at him. "'I know that man,' he said in a cold, measured tone, evidently calculated to frighten Pierre. The chill that had been running down Pierre's back now seized his head, as in a vise. "'You cannot know me, General. I have never seen you.' "'He is a Russian spy.' Davout interrupted, addressing another general who was present, but whom Pierre had not noticed. Davout turned away. With an unexpected reverberation in his voice, Pierre rapidly began. "'No, Monseigneur,' he said, suddenly remembering that Davout was a duke. "'No, Monseigneur, you cannot have known me. I am a militia officer and have not quitted Moscow.' "'Your name?' asked Davout. "'Bezukhov.' "'What proof have I that you are not lying?' "'Monseigneur,' exclaimed Pierre, not in an offended, but in a pleading voice. Davout looked up and gazed intently at him. For some seconds they looked at one another, and that look saved Pierre. Apart from conditions of war and law, that look established human relations between the two men. At that moment an immense number of things passed dimly through both their minds— and they realized that they were both children of humanity and were brothers. At the first glance, when Davout had only raised his head from the papers where human affairs and lives were indicated by numbers, Pierre was merely a circumstance, and Davout could have shot him without burdening his conscience with an evil deed. But now he saw in him a human being. He reflected for a moment. "'How can you show me that you are telling the truth?' said Davout coldly. Pierre remembered Rambal, and named him and his regiment, and the street where the house was. "'You are not what you say,' returned Davout. In a trembling, faltering voice, Pierre began adducing proofs of the truth of his statements. But at that moment an adjutant entered and reported something to Davout. Davout brightened up at the news the adjutant brought, and began buttoning up his uniform. It seemed that he had quite forgotten Pierre. When the adjutant reminded him of the prisoner, he jerked his head in Pierre's direction with a frown and ordered him to be led away. But where they were to take him, Pierre did not know. Back to the coach-house, or to the place of execution his companions had pointed out to him as they crossed the virgin's field. He turned his head and saw that the adjutant was putting another question to Davout. "'Yes, of course,' replied Davout. But what this yes meant, Pierre did not know. 
Pierre could not afterwards remember how he went, whether it was far, or in which direction. His faculties were quite numbed. He was stupefied, and noticing nothing around him, went on moving his legs as the others did, till they all stopped, and he stopped too. The only thought in his mind at that time was, who was it that had really sentenced him to death? Not the men on the commission that had first examined him. Not one of them wished to, or evidently, could have done it. It was not Davout who had looked at him in so human a way. In another moment Davout would have realized that he was doing wrong, but just then the adjutant had come in and interrupted him. The adjutant, also, had evidently had no evil intent, though he might have refrained from coming in. Then who was executing him, killing him, depriving him of life? Him, Pierre, with all his memories, aspirations, hopes, and thoughts. Who was doing this? And Pierre felt that it was no one. It was a system, a concurrence of circumstances. A system of some sort was killing him, Pierre, depriving him of life, of everything, annihilating him. End of chapter 10 this recording is in the public domain.